This is a download from Ormskirk Christadelphians of one of our Sunday afternoon talks. For more downloads, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk or join us in person at our meeting room on Moorgate in Ormskirk every Sunday at 1.45pm. We hope you enjoy the talk. First of all, why do we need to look at parables? Why are they important? Why did Jesus, in fact, speak in parables? Well, we're told the answer, in fact, in our introductory reading. Um, where we can read in Mark chapter 4, and verse 10. And when he, Jesus, was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked him of the parable, and he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto those who are outside... All these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So what Jesus, I think, is saying there is that he spoke to them in stories, uh, in parables, in order that those who perhaps could not be bothered to find out the interpretation were left without, uh, outside, in other words, uh, but those who did care about Jesus' words and his commandments, they would want to dig deeper, like the disciples, like the twelve disciples, would want to dig a little bit deeper to find out what Jesus was talking about. And therefore, uh, it's the same with ourselves. If we just ignore these parables and say, well, they're only stories anyway, and without trying to understand the meaning of them, uh, then we're as bad as those who, Jesus says, are outside, outsiders. Um, and... and we don't surely want to be like that. So we're going to look at then uh, the parables, or some parables anyway, in the Gospel of Mark. Um, there aren't that many actually, there are only seven that I've listed there. Uh, not as many as there are in Matthew and uh, in Luke in fact. Um, and, but even so, seven parables to try and delve into them in any great detail, that is, uh, would take more than the sort of half an hour that I want to spend with you. So, what we're going to do then, I've just got to narrow it down to two parables. The first one is the parable of the soils, or the sower, uh, which we've just had read to us. And the second is in Mark chapter 12, and that's the parable of the vineyard owner. And the reason I've chosen those two is uh, that they are in some respects very similar in terms of their message. And therefore, um, it perhaps will make a greater impact on us, hopefully, if we just look at those two and rather than diversify and look at all the, the different other parables that uh, Mark relates to us. Mark, as I think has already been said, John Mark, that is, who wrote the Gospel, uh, is a man of action. He, he, he talks about events um, rather than long discourses. It's uh, thought that it was a reflection of Simon Peter's words or Simon Peter's recounts of, of the Lord. Uh, and so that's why probably we haven't got too, too many parables. But those that we have... Well, let's look at, first of all, let's look at the sower. We read there that a sower went out to sow his seed, and that seed fell upon different types of ground. The different types of ground, we've read, are the wayside. They were devoured by the seed, was devoured by birds. Some fell among stony places, we can read, and having no root, they withered under the heat of the sun. Some fell among thorns, uh, and the thorns grew up and choked the growing seed. But finally, in the fourth instance, some fell among good ground and it yielded fruit in abundance. So that's pretty much a summary, I think, of what this parable is about. But what, what, does, it all, what does it all mean? What's Jesus trying to tell us? Uh, 
Well, first of all, I think we need to understand that the the key to this parable is that the seed that uh, we see there is the word of God. And we can read that in uh, verse 14 of this chapter of Mark. Mark 4 and verse 14. It just simply says, The sower soweth the word. That being so, then, the varying conditions of the ground, of which we've seen, the four types of ground, are the various types of human nature into which the seed or the word is sown. There's an exhortation given by uh, the the Apostle James, who wrote in his letter, he wrote there, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and overflow of evil, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's from James chapter 1. We see there, and what James is highlighting to us there, there's a point that he's trying to tell us there. There is no enlightenment, James is telling us, from within. Human nature, by its very constitution, is void of good. The Apostle um, Paul writes, he writes this in Romans, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. And that was his testimony. That which is good must of necessity come from outside, we, we can see. Just to confirm that, um, we we can see that in a a later chapter of Mark, uh, chapter 7. Oh, sorry, I missed that one. Uh, That's where we got that initial quote from James, uh, laying all side filthiness. uh, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And that's Paul's testimony. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. We see in the prophecy of Jeremiah also a similar words, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's talking about what comes from within. And then it's where I wanted to go is Mark chapter 7, where Jesus there, preaching to the people, says, There's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile the man. What I'm trying to say is here that enlightenment comes from outside, the light of God's word, but evil uh, uh, and anything that defiles comes from within. Okay, that's the big contrast, the big difference between what comes from outside and what comes from within. And so we see that, according to James, receiving with meekness the implanted word, we embrace a power that is able to transform our character and save our souls. So having established that the seed is the word of God, let's look at the, uh, the wayside And there we can see in summary how the seed, the word of God, fell by the wayside and was devoured by the fowls of the air. And that's told us in in verse 4 of chapter 4. Jesus says, And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it. And there we see Mark chapter 4 and verse 4, those words. This is the seed, we would suggest, uh, that tends to fall on land uh, when, the, when the word of God is preached it's, it's the most uh, obvious place uh, the most common place where that seed tends to land that's what Jesus I think is saying there's no opportunity for the seed to even germinate as soon as it lands on the ground it's eaten up by, by the fowls and any gardener uh, will tell you that that often is what happens physically to the seed that the birds are straight down there uh, and will take whatever they can well, the interpretation is given in Mark chapter 14 and verse, uh, sorry, Mark chapter 4 and verse 15. He says, This is the seed, the word of God, 
that when they hear, that's those by the wayside, Satan or the wicked one cometh immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. This wicked one is a personification of the evil that lies in the world. Elsewhere it is styled the God of this world, who hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There are Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It is here then in the hearts of the unbeliever that much of the seed sown is devoured without any growth whatsoever. But then if we look at the second place that this seed falls in the parable, it falls into stony ground where there's not much earth and there's no, no root at all. And the problem with this seed is that it lands upon stones before uh, where the seed itself could not bed itself to become rooted and so able to withstand any trials. Now these seeds sprang up very quickly and from a cursory view appear to begin with great zeal and earnest. But faith not put to the test is no faith. Because they had no root, they withered away, we're told. In verse 5 and 6 it says, Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. When the sun was up it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. A similar principle is taught by, uh, by Jude in his letter. He says, and he likens it to such a class of people as being shooting stars shining very brightly to begin with but which burn themselves out very quickly uh, and that's similar to this um, seed that fell on stony ground he also writes this is due great and mighty waves of the sea foam out themselves upon the shoreline starting up with a great swelling growth but disappearing to nothing at the last and you can picture that can't you you can picture these great big uh, waves and, and rollers but when they come to, to land and they peter out and it's very similar to this idea Israel of old was said to have stony hearts in the prophecy of Zechariah in the Old Testament we read there yet they made this is the Israel yet they made their hearts as adamant stone lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent in his spirit uh, by the former prophets We'll see a little bit of that later in that second parable that we're going to study about the prophets delivering a message which was not heard by Israel. But it also says, the days are coming uh, when they shall undergo a change of heart, that's Israel, and I will give them one heart and will put a new spirit within you and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. But even today this is the class of those with stony hearts. The very nature of what they are prevents the word to develop and to grow. It might be accepted initially, but does not grow. They may come to receive the word with great enthusiasm, but their zeal quickly diminishes as, hardship, as soon as hardships come. Here, men that trust in their own riches to save themselves fade away under the heat of the sun and the trials of life. And again, speaking more generally... Uh, it's uh, the Apostle Peter who writes in his first letter all flesh is as grass and the glory of man is the flower of grass the grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth away but the word of the Lord endureth forever and this is the word by which gospel is preached unto you but then the third area into which the seed of the word of God is sown falls among thorns and the thorns choke the fruit uh, this is about the cares of this world that can choke the word of God. 
was the prophet Jeremiah who shouted out in his, um, uh, in his prophecy, Thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns, is what he said. The principle here is that a, a superficial reform is not sufficient. The ground has to be prepared. The thorns have to be removed before the fruit can be developed. And there we see the same principle in this aspect of the parable of the sower. Thorny ground cannot yield fruit, for the thorns grow up and choke the developing seed. Even so, the word when it falls upon ground-bearing thorns, it will quickly perish, strangled by the thorns. And there we see it in, in verse, four, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4. Some seed fell among thorns, and thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no crop. And Jesus says, gives us the interpretation of that in verse 19. It's the cares of this world that choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The thorns, therefore, are the cares of this life. And it's so easy in the hustle and bustle of today's society. Many things cry out for our attention, making God and his word perhaps a secondary place in our lives if we are not careful. But the fourth area just one out of four areas um, the seed, the word fell into good ground uh, and that's those who hear the word and bring forth fruit as we have read this is the state of men's hearts which facilitate the growth of the planted word and the interpretation is given for us other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up and produced <coughs> excuse me, it produced fruit so is he that heareth the word and understands it. And there again is the interpretation given in this parable right at the end. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. We note that the reference in this passage, men's hearts that compare with this good ground, are those that have understanding of the gospel preached. That was why Jesus was speaking in parables, so that they would or those that would seek it would understand what he was saying. In our day, the importance of doctrine is often dismissed as being of little practical value, but this was certainly not the case with the Apostle Paul. Um, he writes in, in Colossians of the desire of the believers that their hearts may be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding. And that, that's the key to this fourth area of ground into which the seed falls. That not only is it heard, but it is understood. Understanding gives us full assurance of the things of God so that we can trust him in all, for all things. And again, that same Apostle Paul says this, Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. Grown up, you need to be grown up to understand the word that is sown. A good fertile ground, therefore, it is where the seed will grow and flourish. A fertile mind will permit unrestricted growth. <coughs> but the maintenance of this ground needs diligent work to keep the mind free from the thorns, from the cares of this life. Uh, and that's a lifelong struggle. Often this aspect of bearing fruit is, is dealt with in, in a sort of woolly sort of way where without there being any specific definition of what the phrase means. But the scriptures are very clear concerning the Lord's teaching. He says... Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, 
but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And here the fruits are characteristics by which the tree is made known. Uh, and our characteristics are what we display, our fruits. The production of grapes shows that the plant to be a vine and a good fruit shows the nature of the tree to be good. Likewise, a corrupt tree will not bring bare usable fruit, being only worthy of being cut down. There are therefore characteristics or fruit produced by the disciples of Jesus which demonstrate his discipleship, the nature of the tree. Let's move on quickly and we'll look at the second parable I want to consider. And that's the parable of the vineyard owner. We're going to go into Mark chapter 12 now. And it's only a short parable, so I'll just read those first nine verses for us. Mark chapter 12. And Jesus began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard, and set an hedge about it, and dug a place for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into a far country. And at the season he sent to the tenants a servant, that he might receive from the tenants the fruits of the vineyard. And they caught him, and beat him, and sent him away empty. And again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones, and wounded him in the head, and sent him away, shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, and killing some. Having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those tenants said amongst themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants, and will give the vineyard unto others. To whom then was Jesus addressing this parable? Well, if, if, you, if we just go back uh, one chapter, in verse 27, it's there on the screen if you don't want to turn it up. As he was walking, Jesus was walking in the temple, there come to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, <coughs> and say unto him, By what authority doest thou these things? And they challenged him. And that's following that, Jesus gives this parable about the, uh, the vineyard owner and the tenants. And what does it mean? Well, we can read there, um, we have just read, there are six main characters or elements in this particular story. We see the landowner who planted the vineyard, the vineyard itself, the tenants who occupied the vineyard to, to grow the fruit uh, that the landowner had planted. We then see the landowner's servants who are sent to collect of the fruit of the harvest. We see the son and we see what's described as other tenants. We read there in uh, chapter 12 and verse 1 about the watchtower and the hedge. Uh, they were means of protecting the vineyard and the ripened grapes. The wine press is obviously for stamping out the juice of the grapes to make the wine. As we said, the landowner uh, here was apparently, as we've read, was apparently away at the time of the harvest and had rented the vineyard to these tenants. It was customary of the times and the landlord, or the, the, the landowner should I say, uh, the landowner could expect um, some return on his investment in the vineyard he could expect as much as half of the grapes as payment by the tenants 
for the use of his land. That was, that was uh, normal practice. If we look at, then at the interpretation of this, we can see, in fact, what Jesus is saying here, that the landowner, and the man who planted the vineyard, <coughs> excuse me, was God, is God. The vineyard itself is Israel in this particular parable. The imagery is similar to uh, a parable in, in Isaiah's gospel, uh, sorry, in Isaiah's prophecy. We won't look it up, but it's in chapter 5 if you want to look it up later. Where we can read, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. We can read in verses 2, back in Mark chapter 12, in verses 2 to 5, we read there that the landowner sends his servants to collect the portion of the harvest that was his due, and how they were cruelly rejected by the tenants, the religious leaders that he's addressing at the moment. Um, those same religious leaders who rejected those that were sent to him for collection of the fruits of the harvest. And some were beaten, some were stoned, and even killed. He sent some more the second time, and they received the same treatment. And the servants here are representatives, um, the landowner's servants are representatives of the prophets that God had sent to his people Israel, and were rejected and killed by the very people who were claiming to be of God and obedient to him. We know that, for example, from just a few examples, Jeremiah was beaten, John the Baptist was killed, wasn't he? And others were stoned. And so we see that the prophets who were sent to Israel, or to the religious leaders then, uh, were rejected. They were stoned, beaten, killed. And, and um, that's the, that was the reward, if you like, that those prophets received. In this parable, Jesus is not only reminding the religious establishment what they were like, but he was putting in their minds a question. How could they claim obedience as God's people and still reject his messengers? We're not told in this parable how many servants the owner sent, and well, perhaps that's not important anyway. The theme is God's repeated appeal through his prophets to an unrepentant people. In the next few verses in Mark chapter 12, the situation becomes even more critical. The landowner sends his son, and that of course is representative, as we see there, of the Lord Jesus himself. Surely, the landowner says, God uh, believes, they will respect my son, they will pay him reverence, we've read. But the tenants see an opportunity here. They believe that if they kill the son, they will then receive his inheritance. The law apparently at that time provided that if there were no heirs, then the property would pass to those in possession, possession being nine-tenths of the law. This amounts to a conspiracy to commit murder by the Jewish leadership, and it is obviously prophetic in the sense that Jesus is now telling them what they were going to do to him. The tenants probably thought that the fight for the property was now over, that they would just simply inherit by killing the son, the heir. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, because the owner, that's God, will arrive on the scene. And Jesus now asks this question um, in verse 9 that we've read. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? That's the Lord God. He will come and destroy the tenants and will give the vineyard unto other tenants. And that represents all nations. What Jesus is doing here is forcing the religious leaders to declare their own miserable fate, condemnation for their blatant disobedience. Up to this point, Jesus has been dealing with the immediate situation of Israel and its past disobedience. 
Now Jesus leaves open the question of what Israel's leadership is going to do with the Messiah, with him, the Son of God. Whom he refers to as the chief cornerstone. If we, if we read on in verse 10, now of Mark 12, Jesus says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. We know that cornerstones or capstones are used symbolically in scripture and picture Christ as the main piece of the foundation of the church and the head of the church respectively. This verse makes clear prophetically how Jesus will be rejected by the religious establishment and ultimately be crucified. In Psalm 118 we can read there, the stone, that's the Lord Jesus, which the builders refused is become the head of the corner. And after the Lord's death, Peter would make the same charges against this religious establishment. Um, we can read that, I think, on the next slide. In Acts chapter 4, Peter says this, Be known to you all, and he's speaking to the people and to the religious leaders of the day, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He just healed a man. Uh, and Peter's saying, it's not my power that's done this. This is the power that's been given me through the Lord Jesus. This is the stone which was set at naught by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So you can see that the parable of the, vine parable of the vineyard, uh, if you like, was prophetic. Jesus said, you will reject me. Um, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. And so Peter confirms that also. The key to understanding this parable and what it says about the religious leaders is found in Matthew and chapter 21 and verse 43 where Jesus makes their lack of obedience personal. If we just turn to Matthew chapter 21 for a minute. And verse 43, if you want to follow it with me. Verse 42, in fact, for connection, confirming what we've already <clears throat> read about. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits of it. He is saying that there will be a new people of God, <coughs> made up of all peoples who accept the Lord Jesus and walk in his ways. This will change the way God deals with man, from the old dispensation of the law to a new dispensation of God's grace. It will usher in a period of time where man will no longer understand forgiveness of sins through the sacrifices of animals, as they did in the past on the altar, but by the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. It will be a time when each individual can have a personal and saving relationship with the one and only God of the universe. And the exciting part of that verse is the phrase, who will produce fruit, that we've just read in Matthew. It will be given to those who produce fruit. The Jews felt that they had automatic membership of God's kingdom because of their relationship to Abraham. 
This is why they put so much emphasis on genealogies. But the new people of God would truly have what God wanted for Israel all along. A personal and a holy relationship that will be honoured through the spreading of God's word to all people. We see there also, <coughs> if we read on in Matthew 21, after Jesus has said the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits of it, when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them and they were quite right. He was directing this parable to them. That's what God wanted for his people. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. But of course, the people forgot God and rejected him. And therefore, the Lord Jesus is saying that I will give the kingdom to those who, pro who produce fruit we go back to Mark chapter 12 now again let's just reiterate verse 10 have you not read this scripture the stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner this is, was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes and verse 12 and they that's the religious leaders to whom he is addressing the ones who had perceived that he was speaking about them they sought to lay hold on him but feared the people for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them and they left and went their way and so that uh, verse 12 gives us uh, sorry go back up gives us three insights the one the verse that we've just read into what the chief priests were thinking and, and the religious establishment one is they are jealous and envious of Jesus' popularity with the common people they feared the people we read because Jesus was popular with them. This encroaches on their authority and their power to govern. Secondly, they've come to the realisation that Jesus is talking about them. It hurts their pride and embarrasses them in front of the people. And thirdly, they understood that the analogy of the Son and that Jesus was referring to himself. This would be blasphemous to them and they would now go their way to seek to kill Jesus. From here the leaders would meet in secrecy to plot how they would get rid of Jesus. Well, why all the secrecy? Well, because the people thought of Jesus as a prophet. Arresting him could cause an uprising. An uprising would jeopardize the leaders' relationships with the Roman authorities, something that the Jews did not want at any cost. And so we've seen those two parables then, just to summarize. Um, like the parable of the sower... Um, is the seed falling on good ground? Well, obviously, um, not in this particular case, not in, in the case of the tenant farmers. We can apply the parable of the vineyard, in fact, to our own lives. Do we reject Jesus in our lives, as the Jewish leadership did? Do we accept Christ as the only one who can save us from the penalty of our sins? Are we like the bad tenants, rejecting his word and living a life of disobedience? Well, we can only answer that question ourselves. There are the lessons of the two parables that we've read are we fertile ground are we good ground into which can bring forth fruit do we accept the Lord Jesus 
uh, the, God's Son, or do we reject Him? Do we hear the words, heed the words of Peter in Acts chapter two? And this is our final slide. Peter again is speaking to the people, and he says, "God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye." And he's speaking to the people in general, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, "Men and brethren." What shall we do? And the answer is quite clear. Peter's reply is, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That would be a good platform to go on to talk about baptism, but our time is up. And the subject of baptism is one that is frequently uh, discussed and contemplated from, from this platform. But that's just to give you an indication of what our response should be what their response should be, but wasn't, what, what our response should be. That we, if we will accept the Lord Jesus, if the seed is going to fall into fertile ground, in other words, ourselves, then we need to repent and be baptised. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that talk. For more downloads, information about what we believe, and details of our meeting times, go to our website, ormskirkchristadelphians.org.uk. Christadelphians.org.uk.